Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 153 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So uh, this week, again, we welcome back our special guest, Nick Whitaker, uh, filling in for Matt this morning. So good morning, Nick. Good morning. Good to have you back on. Every other week is beginning to be a common theme here. I think uh, the listeners and viewers love hearing what you have to say, so we're going to keep doing this. Well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so before we begin, as always, just want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track, and these numbers are as of the market close on June 8th, and the data is from StockCharts.com and Coifin. S&P 500 index is down 0.4% to start the month of June and down 13.87% for the year. The Dow down 0.24% for the month and down a little more than 9.5% for the year. The NASDAQ composite index uh, positive 0.04% for the month and down 23.2% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index up 1.42% for the month and down 15.69% for the year, which is an interesting development that we'll talk about. Uh, the Vanguard International ETF, X United States, down half a percent for the month and down 11.3% for the year. Three-month T-bill yield at 1.25%, the two-year Treasury yield at 2.8%, and the 10-year Treasury yield sitting at 3.06%. So the one that caught my eye here, Nick, was small caps outperforming so far to start the Mm -hmm. month of June. And that's intriguing to me because typically as we start to get near the end of a sell-off or a bear market or a recession, small caps tend to lead coming out of those difficult Mm -hmm. environments. Now, this is a very short-term outperformance uh, just for the first week or week and a half of June so far, but um, nonetheless, definitely something to keep an eye on for sure. Yeah, definitely a risk on trade when you see small caps and and more tech-heavy, growth-heavy names. Right. So we'll see if that lasts through the month of June. However, uh, those names have struggled in the last day or two. Uh, Moving on to big headlines, current events from the week. Uh, The first thing was May employment data. So uh, May non-farm payrolls increased by 390,000. Uh, The consensus was 325,000. The three-month average for total non-farm payrolls decreased, though, to 408,000 from 516,000. And one important item to note is that employment in retail trade declined by 61,000 in May, and the number of persons employed part-time for economic reasons increased by 295,000 to 4.3 million. So the latter are employees whose hours are cut due to slack work or business conditions. But to be fair, employment in retail trade is still higher above its February 2020 level by about 160,000. But this is a forward looking market that doesn't seem to be looking um, too optimistic for the road ahead in terms of the economy. Um, Another point of contention is how Wall Street interpreted the employment report, and based upon how the market reacted last Friday, it was still too good overall to convince the stock market that the Federal Reserve is going to pause its rate hikes after uh, increase, excuse me, it increases the target range for the Fed fund rates by 50 basis points at the June and July FOMC meeting. So, I think the the reaction here was they actually Wall Street wanted to see not so strong job numbers so that they would let the Fed get a little more data to ease their rate of rate hikes. Exactly. Um, So it's kind of like good news is bad news at this point. It's the classic good news is bad news. We see it all the time in the markets where really what what the market wants is they want things to remain the same or they want the, the projected fed rate hike to come down a little bit so 
Yeah, they want the monetary environment to be easier. Yeah, exactly. Good news is bad news here, but uh, the numbers are strong. So the economy is strong. Mm -hmm. Just falls into the bucket of one of those things that, you know, from an outsider looking in on the industry is this doesn't make sense. And trust me, we have a lot of that in this industry. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. Um. I think you have some updates on some items from the SEC and order flow, Nicholas? Yeah, so I've got, uh, you know, hopefully I can get through this pretty quick. But uh, the other big headline that I wanted to talk through was uh, an article on the Wall Street Journal from the other day. And it was it, it was titled, The SEC's Trading Shakeup Expected to Face Heavy Opposition. So I took a deep dive, well, somewhat deep dive. I read, you know, a handful of articles, watched a couple of videos just to educate our listeners as to what's what's going on here um and there's a series of articles on the wall street journal over the past i'd say like week and there was another piece uh, about a month ago um about these sec regulations around trading and a lot of this was sparked by the the meme stock trading frenzy with with game stock and 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 there was a couple other names amc thank you amc um and the topic of the discussion is called payment for order flow. Okay, so I just want to kind of walk through this for listeners and just kind of explain a lot of these articles and just summarize it for everyone. So what is payment for order flow? Uh, when you buy a stock on a platform like Fidelity or TD Ameritrade or, or Robinhood um, is, is one of the, the highlighted. One of Matt's favorites. Yeah, one of the highlighted ones on, on, in the articles. That, that broker will send the order. Often, they will send the order to, the, to a high-frequency trader. The, the two names you hear a lot are Citadel Securities um, and, and Virtue Financial, and they're market makers. Um, your trade executes almost instantly, right? Because it, it's, it's algorithms, and they, and they execute it. And, and the way that these market makers, these high-frequency market makers, make money is they make money on the bid and the ask spread. And yeah, and just to pause there, Nick, for, for people that don't know, you know, so say, you know, XYZ stock is trading at $20 per share. Hmm. You're not necessarily going to get $20 per share all the time, right? So there's a bid and an ask and you buy at the ask and you sell at the bid. Mm-hmm. And typically the midpoint is where the stock is trading, right? Exactly. So for a $20 stock that, you know, maybe the market cap is, you know, a billion dollars or a couple hundred million dollars. The bid ask spread could be 19 and a half on the bid and 20 and a half on the ask. And when you're buying, you're buying on the ask at 20 and a half instead of 20. And that's right. how the, these market makers make their money. Exactly. And it's moving around constantly, right? The market's moving every second, right? right? And so that's exactly your, that. Thank you for going into that. And I'm going to need your help as we go through. This yeah. And, and for, and for bigger, gaps. you know, more liquid names like an Apple or an Amazon, Facebook, Tesla, Google, the bid ask is a lot tighter, extremely narrow because it's, it's a very liquid name, but exactly. for names that aren't traded as much, that could be a lot wider. Exactly. And during times of market stress, when liquidity dries up, that bid and ask gets more and more wide. Right. Right. And so that's how these high frequency traders make their money is they make the they make a couple pennies on the trade. You've got a buyer, you've got a seller uh, from Robin Hood. It goes to the market maker being Citadel Securities or Virtue Financial. They high frequency, like the high frequency trade occurs and they take a penny off the trade. Mm-hmm. And that's how they make their money. Um, this entire idea it allows for almost you know, the benefits of it. It allows for almost immediate execution, um, particularly in like a small retail account. If you go and buy 10 shares of Apple, you bought it, it's executed. Um, and it also has really allowed for zero commission trading, um, which is pretty massive to the average retail investor. And, and what I mean by that is on Robin, Robinhood, you can sign up for a profile, you can buy a stock and you don't have to pay to buy that stock, you know, back in, you know, the eighties and the seventies, you know, you had to pay a commission fee to your broker basically saying, Hey, will you go and purchase this stock and find the best price for me? And they'd call the exchange and call other brokers and they would find the best price for you, but it would cost you a couple bucks. Right. Um, so and sometimes more than that. I mean, even in the early two thousands, commissions were, could have been anywhere from 15 to 20 bucks a trade. Exactly. So, so what is the sec all up in arms about? Uh, the concern is that these high frequency shops, and these, these high-frequency uh, market makers 
are taking advantage of the spread, uh, which means that the brokers aren't fulfilling their duty of finding the best possible execution price, right? It's the duty of the broker when their client says, hey, I want you to go buy Apple or, or insert a name, and that's not a recommendation for Apple or any other name we've said here, but hey, go buy this stock. Uh, and the broker goes out, it's their job to find the best possible execution price. Um, and the concern from the SEC is that they're not doing that when they're just throwing it to these, these high frequency money, um, money, uh, market makers, excuse me. Um, and so what the SEC is proposing is that these brokers like Robinhood send their orders direct to stock exchanges to ensure that investors are getting the best possible price. Um, it's worth noting I noticed that a number of countries don't actually allow payment for order flow, which I thought was interesting. The mm -hmm. UK doesn't allow it. Um, and so what do we think about this based on things I've read and, and what I've looked into? Um, and I want to read an excerpt that, that stuck with me. Um, and this is a bias excerpt because it's from Charles Schwab, who wants payment for order flow to continue. But I think he makes a couple good points. Um, uh, Charles Schwab, one of the largest retail brokers, has been circulating a policy document estimating current stock market rules allowing brokers to route customer orders to high-frequency traders will save individual investors $120 billion over a decade. I should comment there. I'm going to insert that. That would not shock me if that number was amplified or the math. They need a headline long. grab. They need a headline grab. But I do think it saves money, uh, investors' money in the long term. I think that's probably accurate. Uh, and then he, he continues to say, we have to be really careful not to destroy the good in search of the perfect. And that was Charles Schwab, CEO, Walter Bettinger. Um, uh, adding that individual investors have never enjoyed lower costs and better accessibility. And that part I think is, is true. I think this might be a little bit of, of that going on where the SEC is trying to get something perfect and it's pretty good. Now, I'm not saying that there, there, there couldn't be some corruption or greed going on with these high-frequency shops. They make a lot of money. Um, there, there could be a, a middle ground here, but I think big picture here, investors are, have never had easier access to the markets. They're not having to pay massive commission costs. I think that is a win in the system. Um, so it, it seems kind of like a no-brainer to me from, from that angle. Um, but I think what will most likely happen, in my, my opinion, if there's going to be a lot of pushback on this, there already has been. Robinhood's increased their, their lobby money 20-fold. Um, and, and most likely what will happen is just more regulation for those high-frequency money market companies, mm -hmm. you know, your virtue financials, which is not a bad thing. I think that will just help brokers make more informed decisions. Um, that's my guess as to how this plays out. Um, but yeah, I and I, th thoughts about yeah that. I think the important thing to note too, is that when, you know, Robin hood and Schwab and fidelity and TD all went to, you know, zero commission trading, a lot of people initially thought that it was truly free and like anything else, that's not the case. Right. Mm -hmm. So you have these big companies that Nothing are paying them, <laughs> You know, like a Citadel paying to get these order flows to execute these so that Citadel can make money and they know how these people are trading. Right. So nothing is ever free. But I agree with you that this zero commission trading has given a lot more people access to the financial markets that previously couldn't afford to do so. Mm -hmm. So I do think it's a step in the right direction. Most of the times, I, I do think that the retail investors are usually trading liquid names that it's not really going to be a big deal and you're not yeah, going to see a massive difference. It's not like you're going to, you know, you're going to get, you know, a 20 percent cut no, on no, what you're trying to buy the stock for. Yeah. You know, it's very, very, very small. And that's what the articles kind of almost like make it sound like, like, oh, you're trying to buy a stock at $20 and you get an $18 uh, dollar price that's not true at all yeah it's it's not true <laughs> and the other way it's 1998. like 1998 <laughs> right right yeah, so. so it's i think it's for most people it's really a non-issue um but it's just i think more of the sec trying to crack down and make things more fair for the smaller investor yeah and i think a lot of it comes comes from politics as well and pressure from the political realm from yeah what, from i think I you know all the time you're gonna have you know congressmen out there and you know congresswomen out there 
you know, saying we have to do more for the, the smaller investor. You have to do more. Yeah. And it's like, okay, is that just a, to get in the headlines and to get votes or is it actually going to benefit the smaller investor? Yes. yes. Which like anything else in the political spectrum, you could have your own opinion on yeah, it, but we'll see. I have mine. So that, so that was a little bit of a, a longer one for the headlines than we normally do, but hopefully that helped listeners. Who yeah. Were, well, who I think it's important that. for people to understand how these things get executed because, you know, if you're using a platform and you're doing it yourself, it's just like, okay, I'm, I'm going out and I'm buying, you know, shares of XYZ company. But I think a lot of people don't understand how the system actually works mm -hmm. for you to get that stock in your account. Yeah. So interesting. Indeed. Uh, moving on to tweets, articles, and research from this week. Um, I had one from Ophir Gottlieb. Uh, he's a research analyst that I follow, and he tweeted, lumber prices are now below $600. It's incredible that prices have dropped 40% in a month, and it's not a story anywhere. That is crazy. We heard all of this stuff about how lumber was going to the sky when commodities started getting more expensive but literally this is the first thing that i've seen on lumber prices coming down that's crazy yeah, and that's not. a huge drop yeah right so that goes to add to why uh, a part of the reason in my opinion why housing prices are coming in mm -hmm. um you know and i think we're gonna see a little bit of a cool down in in prices but that's just wild to me that no one really is talking about this um, and maybe it's because other commodities remain elevated, like especially energy. <laughs> yeah, oil, um, oil is the headline these days. Right. Yeah. But this is a, you know, good sign, in my opinion, that something like lumber is starting to come in. And I guess we'll see over the next couple of months if other commodities follow in its footsteps. Um, but just thought it was kind of crazy to me that this is the first time that that i've seen this and really from their high i think it's i think lumber's down over 65 percent from its high set mm -hmm. last year so um so not everything is super super expensive like you may think it is um and i understand lumber isn't used as much by the everyday consumer like oil and gases right i get that but this is one of the things that i think we should keep an eye on to mm -hmm. see if other commodities start to roll over because, you know, if that is the case, then the Fed may look at this stuff and be like, okay, maybe we're getting closer to our, our target and where we need to be and we won't have to raise as quickly. So I think there, it's a combination of things. You start to get more commodity prices roll over. You start to get positive news out of Russia, Ukraine could set up for a pretty violent rip to the upside in the equity markets, in my opinion. Yeah, it also will help. You know, these, these are the kind of data points that are, are kind of the beginning of, of helping to ease some of that inflation. Right. You know, when you have some of the commodity prices coming down, you've got in, investors pulling or, or not investors, uh, uh, consumers pulling back their spending a little bit because gas prices are high. I mean, all of that kind of stuff in the economy helps start to bring inflation down. And if inflation can be the word you'll read and 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 the, and the market is sticky, if, if it's less sticky, that will be a great thing for both the economy and the markets. Right. Um, the Fed won't have to get as aggressive with Wall, which Wall Street loves and uh, inflation will come down, which is great for consumers. So um, I think it's a good sign in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Still a long way to go, but it's good to see that at yeah. least some things are beginning to roll over. So Yeah, it's a, it's a good chart. People should, should look it up because what I remember is everyone freaking out about lumber in the summer of 21 and you can see why uh, but it's interesting to kind of see that that was it i just remember that and then there wasn't anything on the news when it came back down no and then it went back up a little bit at the end of 2022 which well, yeah is it was it was crazy and, and we were doing just, we were doing some construction on our building and um our contractors yeah. we had lumber out in the back parking lot and i was yeah. like should we be <laughs> leaving that there overnight or should we lock that up somewhere um yeah so yeah Kind of, kind of crazy. So we'll keep an eye, our eye on, on commodities to see if other things uh, follow in lumber's footsteps. Next thing I had was a blog post by Ben Carlson on May 3rd titled, Why Does the Stock Market Go Up Over the Long Term? And I really like this because 
I think a lot of people who are just getting involved in investing and getting involved in the equity markets, they don't really understand why this is a way to make money or the mechanics behind it. So this is a really good, simple post that I think everybody should go ahead and read. I'm just going to read a little bit from what Ben wrote, but uh, he started off the article by saying the long term trend in the stock market has historically been up and to the right. It hasn't gone up in a straight line by any means, but stocks go up most of the time. Since 1928, U.S. stock the U.S. stock market is up 9.8% per year. The market is up roughly three out of every four years, and there have, on, have, there have been no 20-year periods where the U.S. stock market has been down on a nominal basis. But why is this the case? Why does the stock market go up over the long term? I know a lot of people think the Fed controls the stock market or low interest rates or it's the Illuminati that's pulling the strings. But in reality, the biggest reason the stock market goes up over time is because the economy grows and corporations earn more money. In 1928, earnings per share for the S&P 500 was $1.11, while corporations paid out $0.78 per share in dividends. By the end of 2021, those numbers were $197.87 and $60.40, respectively. This means over the past 94 years, earnings on the U.S. stock market have grown at an annual rate of 6%, while dividends have grown at 5% per year. Being an investor in the stock market means you get to take part in the profits and cash flows of corporations. You get to benefit from their innovation, investment, and growth. Let's look at the biggest stock market as an example, or biggest stock in the market as an example. In its fiscal year ending 2014, Apple had sales totaling more than $182 billion, with a net profit of $39.5 billion. In the fiscal year ending 2021, Apple's revenue was $386 billion, and the company produced net profits of $94.7 billion. Sales more than doubled when the cop, while the cop, company's profit was up 140%. Meanwhile, in the same time frame, Apple paid out more than $103 billion to shareholders in the form of dividends. It's incredible. It's crazy. And Apple is not alone in paying dividends to shareholders. The average payout ratio for the S&P 500 corporation since 1928 is more than 50%. This means companies have paid out more than half of their profits to shareholders in the form of cold hard cash. The market value of the entire US stock market in 1982 was 1.2 trillion. Apple alone is now worth more than 2.5 trillion. Stock market goes up over time because businesses get bigger and earn more money over time. If you own stocks, you earn a piece of that growth. The stock market also goes up over the long term because sometimes it goes down in the short term. And if you think about it, the stock market has to go down. It wouldn't offer such juicy returns if you didn't get your face ripped off every once in a while. $10,000 invested in the U.S. stock market in 1928 would have grown to something like $66 million today. But look at all the carnage that came along the way to get there. And he uh, posted this chart in the article of all the drawdowns in the S&P 500 since 1928. So there were times where... You know, from peak to trough, markets were down 44 percent, 83%, 22%, 56%, 50%, 48%. So we have to go through tough times to get where we are today, right? So when you invest in the stock market, like we've talked about here before, you don't simply get 8 to 10% per year, year in and year out. You get some combination of huge gains followed by bone-crushing losses. It has to be this way or the long returns wouldn't exist. If the stock market was an easy thing to do, everyone would be uh, a buy-and-hold investor. The fact that it's not always easy is one of the biggest reasons the stock market goes up over the long term. What are your thoughts? I mean, just a ton of great points in there. I, I like it a lot. Um, course i'm i'm in this industry so i get it uh and it resonates with me on a, on, a, on a number of levels but uh, i think the end especially where he says you know if everyone if, if the stock market was easy everyone would be a buy and hold investor and i i do believe that fundamentally i think and and i know jenna i've, I've said similar things to to you before um 
where especially when you're young, like get in the market, just get in the market and, and, and be consistent with it. And, and you just talk about buying. this and just keep buying and it'll be okay. Over your lifetime, it's going to be higher. I, I truly believe that. And I think this is, is speaking exactly to that. So. Yeah, I think it was just just simplified it for people on, you know, why do people make money in the stock market mm-hmm. over the long term, right? Um, so uh, really good post there by Ben. The last thing I have was a tweet by Brandon Vanzi on April 21st. So we tweeted, not a great look for the markets right now from a sector rotation perspective. And again, this was more than a month ago. The top four rankings on the sector selector that we use uh, at his company, I'm assuming, suggest the possibility of markets being in late expansion to early contraction territory. And um, we'll have Jenna put this tweet up on the YouTube page, but it kind of shows the sector rotation during different economic cycles, Nick. Mm -hmm. And near the peak is when you start to see energy, uh, consumer non-cyclicals, utilities, and basic materials outperform. And those have been the strongest areas of the market over the past couple of months. So um, what one could think that we have already hit the peak uh, in our economy and we're riding this rate wave lower. However, the point I want to make is that it doesn't necessarily mean this has to last for a decade or it has to last for five years or even two years. It could be one year or it could be six more months of this. No one knows, but... With this sustained outperformance in energy, utilities, healthcare, materials, I think it does have some merit that we're going into a different market environment. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. I think it's it's tough for people because it hasn't happened in so long. And you've been fine holding the aggressive areas of the market, consumer discretionary, financials, technology, communication services for the longest time that it feels so different and so weird right now that people have to shift their thinking that, hey, we're just in a completely new market environment than mm-hmm. we have been for the past five years. So or um, longer or longer yeah. or longer. Yeah. So, um, again, if if this stuff didn't happen, then, you know, investing would be easy and returns would be lower. Um, but uh, like I've said before, sector rotation has to happen in the market and you see what happens when it doesn't in uh, 1999 to 01 when technology was a crazy outperformer for two three straight years then it came crashing down so Mm -hmm. there needs to be sector rotation in areas of the market that outperform and underperform different uh, during different market environments and i believe we're just going into one of those periods that tech may underperform or aggressive sectors may underperform for a little while and that's okay that's normal this isn't the first time this has happened before exactly i have a couple points i want to make on that for listeners that i think will help um are you going to put this chart on here for Okay, so Jenna's going to put the chart up here, and the first point I want to make is, is this, this diagram, this is what they teach you in, in finance and school, like this is a textbook kind of chart of what a cycle, quote-unquote cycle, can look like. But the second point I want to make is, I, and, and you've already made it, but I just want to emphasize it for listeners, is that the length of these cycles are wildly different throughout history. Um, you know, the expansion, the, the middle expansion can last for years and years and years or can last for a couple of years and, and has happened at different points in period, uh, uh, different points in history. Um, and the, the other point I want to make is that that's part of the Fed's job is to monitor these cycles and try to make it easier, the, the pain easier. Right. Which is one of the reasons why our recessions in in the past couple of recessions have been a little bit quicker, quicker. relative to like a, a Great Depression, right? That's all learning. That's all us as a society and the Fed learning from history, learning from these cycles and and the Fed using all the policies that they have, all of the tools in the tool belt to try to ease markets and the economies through these these cycles, so to speak. So to your point. You know, I, I, I'm 100% in agreement with you that where we are, it could be one year, it could be two years, 
it could be longer, right? We don't know exactly how this is going to go. And that's the tough part in, in the market. But this is, this is kind of, uh, you know, your blueprint textbook. Kind yeah, of. and I think just the, the takeaway from this is you have to be, as investors, as portfolio managers, we have to be open to the idea of change hmm. um, and, and be able to allocate portfolios according to that. And I know that, you know, people have, have become extremely attached to their more aggressive stocks that they hold because they've performed so well over the long run. Right? For a decade. But again, yeah. it goes back to this theme. And by no means am I saying that some of the largest companies in the world are completely dead. But, you know, back in the day, no one thought GE was going to get taken over. No one thought IBM or Dell was going to get taken over or Qualcomm in the semiconductor space. And that's exactly what happened if you give it enough time. Yep. Right? Yep. So. Yeah, that's a great one. I like that. Uh, earning season, Nicholas. Yes. Yeah. So uh, a, a bit of a tough end to the earnings season. I've talked about it on a, on a couple of podcasts here. But uh, this is a, a research note from 6.6 from Compound Advisors. Um, and Jenna will throw these charts up. Uh, the the comment is this, with the first quarter earnings season nearly complete, 97% of companies reported, S&P 500 earnings are down 14% versus Q4 of 21 and up less than 1% year over year. The first comment I'm going to make on that is up down 14% versus Q4 of 2021. Q4 of 2021 was a really strong year because of uh, they, they call it strong comps um, because you're comparing one quarter to another quarter from a year ago. But you got to think about everything that was happening post pandemic. So those those corporate earnings tended to spike, which is kind of why that looks so bad. So this chart, um, I'd put a little less salt in for listeners. I wouldn't freak out about this chart so much because the, the year of year comps are difficult. Um, but it kind of ties into the next chart that uh, that Charlie talked about, um, which is with the operating profit margins. Now, this one, I think, is more important. And this is the one that's really dri driving some of the market action. And uh, the comment is this. The big concern is that this trend will continue with profit margins coming under pressure as companies find it more difficult to pass on higher costs to consumers. On that front, after hitting a record high in Q2 of 2021, at 13.5%, S&P profit margins have moved down to 12%. So 13.5% down to 12%, uh, you know, common sense would tell us that's not that huge of a move, right? It's a small percentage move. But what's been happening over, you know, in this pullback that we've seen in the market is that cyclical rotation that you just talked about where once profit margins start to turn over, that, that's signaling to us that, hey, we're, we're moving into a different environment. The economic environment looks different. And that's why the market has really, that's, that, this is one of the key points that, that the market's been focused on and, and hence why we've seen some of the sector rotation. So I think that's a good chart for listeners. What, yeah, what and I thought it's just interesting that uh, from the first chart, the comment was S&P 500 earnings are down 14% versus Q4 of 2021. Um, and it's interesting because the S&P 500 is down 14% so far <laughs> year to date. So again, it, you talked about what the nuances and differences of that is, but I just do want to make the point that I think these two charts do prove that earnings growth is what drives stock prices, right? Yeah, this is all coming together pretty nicely. It is. That, it's that like an economics what, 101 class. Yeah, with uh, right. what ben, ben Carlson was saying in the article right. that you read. So, yeah, that's that's exactly a perfect way to summarize it. Um, the next the next one I have is is an update on the consumer. Uh, it's consumer credit is still increasing, and there's, there's a lot of tweets and research on this but I, so i just grabbed one but um this is coming from a, a tweet yesterday from liz ann saunders she's the chief investment strategist at charles schwab and the tweet says borrowed time u.s consumer credit surged by 38 billion in april versus 35 billion estimate and 47 billion in march revised down from 52 billion revolving credit it's up 17.8 billion non-revolving credit 
plus 20 billion. And there's a chart there that, that Jenna will throw up as well. And you can really see consumer credit spike. And what I'll point out is you saw consumer credit drop aggressively in the pandemic and it's kind of spiked back up. And, and this is even in the face of higher interest rates. So yeah. this goes back to our point that, you know, uh, Americans are consumers and our economy is consumption driven. And even with higher interest rates, higher capital costs, people are still spending. It's just what we do. And that's why I'm so optimistic going forward is that people are still going to spend money over the next decade. And that's what's going to drive and continue to drive the growth of our economy. So again, if you're a long term investor, I have no worries in the world, right? This stuff is going to get better because Americans are going to continue to spend no matter how it to a certain extent, no matter how expensive things get, people will pull back, but they're not going to stop. And they'll pull back and then, you know, demand pulls back and then the prices come down and then we buy again. It's just classic. We just go through the cycle over and over and over again. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, Lizanne has some some good stuff. Yeah. So that there's, you know, you'll you'll probably see some some things in the media if you haven't already over the next couple of days of credit getting out of control and i don't know if it's out of control right and when you're talking about consumer credit i think it's uh an injustice to talk about it by itself and not relative to household income exactly because that's how you can compare across different periods of time so while credit may be a lot higher than it was two decades ago, sour, so are household incomes. And you have to yeah, put it in and, that space together. And wages have come up too, right? So, and the other thing is thinking about what's going on in the housing market and how people are having to say, okay, instead of paying X percent for my mortgage, I'm going to have to bump that up because we need to buy a house because we have, you know, whatever's going on, they just, and the housing prices are going up. So your credit's going up, right? You're, borrowing more money because of the housing market. So that's also kind of unnecessarily elevating that chart, in my opinion. Yeah, there's, that's there's why I just want to caution yeah. people. When people see charts just about like credit alone and they're not comparing it along with household income and wages, then be a little sketchy. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, yeah, ask a couple questions, um, particularly with data like that, because yeah. it's all about there's so many variables underneath that. So yeah. the last thing I have is... Uh, Thoughts from Wells Fargo on on the rate hike path. And this is a, a tweet from yesterday as well from Jonathan Farrow of Bloomberg. Everyone knows <laughs> I love Nick I love Jonathan Farrow. He's one of oh my boy. favorites. Uh, shout out be a to a 20 minute rant. Shout out to Jonathan if he ever hears this. Uh, big fan right here. Uh, Jonathan said this. We expect um, he, he's quoting Wells Fargo in his tweet. Uh, we expect the Fed to raise the federal funds rate by 50 bips at each the June, July, and September FOMC meetings. We then expect five more 25 bips rate hikes over the course of the next two years, with the Fed funds rate rising to 3.5 to 3.75 in Q2 of 2023. And that's Wells Fargo. That that uh, that's a a quote from a research piece from Wells Fargo. Um, that's a slightly bullish take, a uh, slightly aggressive stance from Wells Fargo there. Uh, I, I took a look at the CME futures expectations on the Fed funds rate yesterday after I read this. Um, and, I, and I looked at that for June of 2023. And what, uh, what that does is it basically breaks out and it says, uh, where the it shows you where the market is expecting rates to be on a percentage basis. So you know, twenty percent, twenty six percent of the market expects rates to be at three point zero zero to three point two five. Thirty three percent of the market expects rates to be at three point two five to three point five. Twenty one percent expects the market. To, uh, the, the expects rates to be at 3.5 to 3.75, and then there's smaller percentages off to the side to make up your 100%. But mm-hmm. the current target rate is 0.75 to one, and this is these rates. And what Wells Fargo is saying is that we're, we we as the market expect rates to be uh, in that call it three and a half range, three to three and a half range in the summer of next year up from about 1% now. 
So that that's kind of where the expectations are. Yeah, and I think that some of it to a certain extent, I think the Fed can see the writing on the wall in that eventually in the not so distant future they're going to have to cut rates again so we want to they want to get it to a level where they have room to do that exactly and i think we're just again in this never-ending cycle of raising rates and cutting rates and raising rates and cutting rates and um i think it's important to note that you know three and a half percent sounds expensive relative to what we've experienced over the past decade but if you look at over history it's still free it's yeah it's it's (laughs) pretty close to being free right um, so again, these are all just expectations and forecasts and predictions. Um, but I don't think it's going to be too long before, you know, we get up to a certain level and they're like, okay, we're going to cut rates again to stimulate want, the economy. I want to emphasize something you said for listeners, cause it's really important and I don't want, want listeners to miss it. Cause, cause it was just th- in, in one of the things you said, but like you said, the, the fed wants to get to that level so they have room to cut rates in the event that we have a quote unquote hard landing and the recession is tougher because at 1%, there's not a lot they can do. Money's almost pretty much free. pretty free. So that's why the path there's twofold, right? They want room to be able to help in the event that, that the recession is, is harder, uh, than it could be uh and and at the same time that will combat inflation but that's a very good point that you made uh, they they need room they want room which right. is kind of why the market thinks they're gonna they're gonna raise rates so aggressively so quickly right that's a big factor in it that i don't think a lot of people talk about no yeah i i appreciate it it's mm-hmm. definitely something that we need to consider and um you know sure we'll be talking about this you know six months from now and i'm sure the market expectations for rates are going to be different from where they are today so very much so um all right well thanks nick i'm going to pull in uh taylor for our financial planning topic of the week so i will see you probably sometime within the next few weeks back on here sir yes thank you sir and thanks listeners just pounding away at that keyboard over there (laughs) (laughs) hey taylor welcome back to the podcast this week um so what do you have for listeners for the financial planning topic of the week Mm -hmm. so today i'm going to be talking about pmi and how you could potentially get that knocked off with the current housing environment i was gonna say right up front i'm (laughs) really not a fan of pmi i think it's a scam it's a waste of money but well this will be interesting go ahead (laughs) Um, So first, I just want to cover some of the basics of PMI just to make sure listeners have a clear understanding. So PMI, it's a type of mortgage insurance that buyers are required to pay for a conventional loan when they make a down payment that's less than 20% of the home's purchase price. Lenders may offer low down payment programs, allowing you to put down as little as 3%, and the cost of that flexibility is PMI. And this protects the lender's investment, not really yours, in case you fail to repay the mortgage. Mm -hmm. So according to Freddie Mac, a government-sponsored enterprise, they buy and sell mortgages in the secondary market. They estimate that you pay anywhere between $40 and $80 per month for every $100,000 borrowed. So if you purchase a home that's worth around 300000 the PMI monthly payments could be anywhere between 140 to 240 a month. Okay. Do you think that's a pretty accurate analysis? I, th- I think it is. Yeah, I think it is. Again, in PMI relative to your purchase prices, it's not a lot from a monthly expense, but it's just like from my standpoint, I'm like, okay, I'm paying for the lender's insurance so i'm not even paying for insurance on myself (laughs) right Right. um so again i i don't really like it that much and you know my dad i think i talked about this on the podcast before is my dad uh when it comes to finance he has like two main sticking points number one is you should always 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 buy a car should never lease it because it doesn't make sense to him financially and uh number two is you should always put 20 percent down so you don't have to pay pmi so i get Mm -hmm. that from my dad but yeah um but yeah just a it's just one of those unnecessary expenses that i think 
they throw in there and it's not really something that you ever need. Yeah, I mean, it's probably geared more towards the younger buyers because they may not have 20% to put down on a home. Right, exactly, exactly. So the two most common options to pay for PMI is a one-time upfront premium that's paid at closing, or you can do the monthly premiums. Yeah, and the more common is monthly to spread right. that out. Yeah, and the disadvantage of making the upfront payment at closing is that if you move or refinance your mortgage, you're, you're not going to get that money back. Right. So PMI can be eliminated in a few different ways, but I just wanted to focus on what's called borrower-initiated cancellation. Basically, you can request PMI cancellation once the amount of your loan falls below 80% of the home's original appraised value. And I thought this was really interesting to bring up since, you know, the value of homes have really spiked over the past couple years. Mm -hmm. So lots of people could probably get that PMI knocked off. Yeah, and this is the interesting part, and I'm sure you're going to get into this, but so that's that's when you hit uh 20% equity in your home you have to call and initiate them to take that off correct or else they just keep charging you for it yeah they're and, not going to reach out to you yeah and the only reason why i know this is because the last house that i closed on the closing company gave me the date that i'm mm -hmm. expected to hit that uh equity level and that i have to call and tell them hey i have 20% equity in my home let's take this off or else they're just going to keep charging you, mm -hmm. which is, in my opinion, ridiculous. So I agree. Continue. <laughs> um, so like I said, I think it's important to bring this up because home sales have been increasing over the past couple years and the values have been increasing substantially. So, I mean, if you didn't expect PMI to get knocked off for another 10 years or so you could potentially get that knocked off now right and if you've done any remodels you know that also adds to the value and can potentially get that taken off earlier absolutely so i mean has this been a common topic of conversation at all um it has um because everyone the big question i think taylor is everyone is like how much should i put down on my home and like anything else in finance i think it's a different conversation and a different answer for everybody um and it depends on the type of market environment that we're in so you know for the past several years you didn't have to put down that much on a home to get a really good interest rate but now when we're in a raising a rising rate cycle you know sometimes it makes sense to put down more so that you get a lower interest rate right right and you eliminate the pmi but because we were in such a low interest rate environment, it made sense to put the least amount down possible and invest mm -hmm. the rest of the money that you had from the sale of a uh, home or the savings that you had to buy a new home because the market environment was great. And again, kind of how Nick and I were talking about how we're kind of going and entering into this different environment than we've been in for the past five to 10 years, it comes into play with financial planning because now people have to make the decision of, should I pay off my debt quicker if the interest is higher or should I invest it? And obviously people are scared to invest it right now just given the market environment that we're in. Mm -hmm. So if interest rates go higher, you know, I think the break even point of where it makes sense to pay off debt rather than investing is anywhere between that seven to nine percent range, just mm -hmm. because historically that's what the S&P 500's average annual return has been since the market's mm -hmm. inception. So I think it's just going to bring into question a lot more with people, uh, with investors and with clients. It's what should I should be doing, investing or paying off debt? Mm -hmm. And, you, you know, you got to take everything into your personal financial situation into account mm -hmm. before just making a decision because you heard someone on the news or you read an article that said you should pay off debt or you should be investing that money. Right. So. No, I, I completely agree. And I mean, by knocking it off now, it could save you thousands of dollars, especially if you had a longer term PMI. Yeah. And it all, and it all depends on how long you're going to stay in the home. That's true. Too. Right. So mm -hmm. if you're not going to stay in the home that long, why, you know, tie up your money to just to get to the 20 percent to knock mm -hmm. 40 to 50 bucks off of your monthly payment? Mm -hmm. If you're only going to be there for a couple of years, it might not make that much sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. so this would definitely be more for the longer term homeowners. Absolutely. Yeah. If you found your home and you're like, <laughs> this is the home I'm going to raise my family in, we're going to be here for 20 or 30 years. 
then yeah, I agree that that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But the tricky thing is some people don't know that, right? There's right. a lot of people that make up, make up their mind and they're going to be here for a certain amount of time. But if you're someone that lives in Dayton, for example, and you work out at uh, Wright-Pat Air Force Base, you could get relocated at any time, mm -hmm. right? So it's hard for people because they're like, I really don't know how long I'm going to be here. And if you're in that situation, I would recommend putting down the least amount possible mm -hmm. and just paying that PMI as you go. Because like you said, if you're not in the house long enough, then you're going to lose that money if you pay it up front. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. absolutely. Um, so, yeah, that, I mean, that's really why I just wanted to bring this up today. It's because, like I said, given the current housing environment, you know, I think it's very useful for clients or listeners to know they could get that knocked off if they weren't aware of how this worked. Right, exactly. And again, I just learned this just because I closed recently back in um, the fall of, of 2021. And so the automate, automatic PMI termination kicks in uh, when the mortgage balance is 78% of your loan to value mm -hmm. ratio. So they, they get you for an extra 2% of that equity if you don't call yeah. and say, hey, I want to get rid of PMI. Yeah, there's, there's, like I said, there's a couple different ways to do PMI, but I thought this was just the most general one to talk about, maybe the most common, but I think they're all pretty similar, sounds like. Yeah, mm -hmm. yep. Well, thanks for bringing this up, Taylor. I know this is a pretty hot topic right now, uh, especially with the way the housing market has been. So um, if anyone has any additional questions, please feel free to uh, contact our office and Taylor can talk to you more about this. Um, and I think we'll leave it there for the week for episode number 153. We'll be back with you shortly uh, on Monday just due to schedules and business commitments next week uh, for episode number 154. So Matt and I will talk to you all then. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.